You are listening to the Carrero Podcast. This is Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Echo Mosesman, and she is a middle school teacher at Judkins Middle School in Pismo Beach, California. She has been teaching for 20 years and teaches seventh grade science and still loves it. Echo has taught English language science and has only taught at Title I schools where 85% of the population falls within the correct demographics to qualify for free or reduced lunch. She has also taught in schools that have been in program improvement level five. Through all the changes in education, she has found one trend that always remains true. Children need love, guidance, and support. Welcome, Echo. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Just so that we can get to know you a little bit better, we like to ask our teachers how you became a teacher, what influenced you, or if there was a teacher that influenced you, and maybe what you learned from them. So I've been a teacher for 20 years now, and when I look back into kind of my past, I first of all have a lot of influence from my parents. I think that my dad early on was a chemistry teacher. He had this natural ability to kind of reach kids and talk to us at a level that made sense. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and we lived in a greenhouse where we grew flowers and whatnot. So it was a very scientific, very inquisitive environment for me. So I really want to stem back to probably them being my biggest influence of being inquisitive about the world around me, which is kind of that basis of where my scientific mind comes from. But then along the way, I don't think I had a good influence or some really significant teachers until I was like in sixth or seventh or even in my higher level classes. My sixth grade teacher was, I was really terrible at handwriting. And I remember that it was the lowest score I'd ever gotten, a C on a report card. (laughs) And I just was absolutely devastated, right? And I thought for the life of me, this lady hated me. How could I be this superstar student? And I just cannot do cursive. And I, I would go in every day and I'd be like, can I help clean the classroom? <laughs> and I basically think that like the direct reflection of my grade was because I just wasn't and I wasn't adequate enough at this. Mm. So she she realized what my my issue was. She'd cut, sit down with me every day after school because I would want to clean her room or help her grade. And she'd be like, we're going to work on cursive. And it was that little piece where she knew I was struggling with not being able to accomplish this thing. And I wasn't strong enough with my own little sixth grade voice to say, mm. hey, can you help me do cursive? Yeah. Instead, it was, I'll just kiss your butt and clean your room <laughs> and just make nice with you. Yeah. And maybe you'll like reconsider. It turned out she realized it was a cry for help. That's a and um, ever since then, it really started to change my whole perspective about school and education. And it wasn't until that sixth grade teacher that I really started to have this affinity for learning and started realizing I could talk to these people like normal people. And I wasn't afraid to like have a voice. So as soon as I gained my voice, There were many teachers, like Mr. Ramirez, for example, at Bishop, my religion teacher. He just was wonderful. He gave us this, like, really open-minded perspective. This Mr. Ramirez? This one? 
That, that Mr. Ramirez. Wow. Back when you were a mister, now you're a doctor, so. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, well, it, you know, and when I, when I found out and when, when, when you were teaching, um, um, I, I was real excited. Okay. okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that, that, that we as teachers, when we look back and there's, and there's students and there, you know, I could, um, looking back just with your, with your personality and then your openness too. Um, I was thinking, yeah, you know, this would be a perfect fit, but one of the things in which you were, you were talking about, um, with, with some of the, some of the things that you were writing to us, um, when you had your 30 day substitute teaching position and, and shared that you loved substitute teaching, nobody says that they loved substitute teaching because you're like at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. So, so can you, so can you talk about that? So I went in, you know, I worked in the community that I grew up in. So I'm from Carpinteria, this little hometown, everybody knows everybody. So when I started my subbing, I went into this environment that I was really familiar with. This was my hometown. So I was very well accepted. The kids, um, so I started teaching in my hometown. So it was kind of the school I went to school in. And I had teachers that were my teachers when I was a student there. So they pretty much as a substitute, that's the crummiest job you can get. Mm -hmm. Um, But as soon as they saw me walk on campus, I was getting jobs every day. Um, Parents were so excited that I was part of the school district. I was getting requested by teachers to the point where I never really felt it as like a crutch. I I really substitute teaching is terrible. The kids yeah. are awful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I would bring a bag of incentives. I always had like a bag of Jolly Ranchers with me mm-hmm. and they'd, they'd always know they'd start following me around campus so that they could get feeds <laughs> or doing like all these superstar things. And I became the favorite sub in the district and it made me feel really good because what ended up happening was I got a long-term sub position in sixth grade because of one of the teachers who had a baby. And then I got to spend a total of 30 days in a sixth grade science and math class. And at that point, that was when I decided I was going to be a teacher forever. Yeah. Um, and I signed myself up for a credential program and, and went to graduate school and uh, just kind of was like, that was the moment it all clicked for me. Mm-hmm. So that, I that think that a lot of times being a sub is really hard because you don't have that relationship with those students. And it sounds like based on you just being on campus a lot and the students getting to know you is what allowed you to become uh, more familiar with them and form those relationships without being like their regular teacher. And sometimes, yes, it takes extrinsic extrinsic motivation to get them to stop and listen to you. And those Jolly Ranchers worked for you. And I have told my students too, like they've expressed, you know, just frustration with teaching as a sub. And I'm just like, you know what? Bring candy. Kids love candy and it helps. And if it, you know, gets them to listen to you for a minute, then you win. So very true. 
Um, we also kn- know, and you shared with us in your bio, that you've taught only at Title I schools. And that's a super big challenge, too. So not only are you like a rock star sub teacher, but you're also a Title I school teacher. So we want to know what drew you to this work and what has caused you to invest your time with this population. So in California, it's really hard to find a school that's not Title One. In fact, <laughs> yeah. um, and so I, um, I began. I was a candidate for the governor's. Um, it was called the Governor's Apple Grant um, when I was in graduate school for good um, grades, and I got twenty grand. And the way that I didn't have to pay that back is if I found myself a Title One school. Well, at the time, I didn't actually know that Carpentria Middle School was a Title I school. And so I started there because I wanted to be back home. I was living in L.A. I went to Occidental College down in um, Eagle Rock. And I had been there for two years. It was too busy. The kids were just too disconnected from education. I just, I really wanted to be back into in my small town community. I'm, I'm a small town girl. And um, I had, um, so I had started in middle school CARP and we weren't Title I at the time or I hadn't known, we hadn't qualified for Title I. So I went in thinking I'm paying this this grant back. And then three years later, we ended up doing all the paperwork. I don't know what your 85% free or reduced lunches. So your demographics is basically low income. And what I've found is pretty much every school that I've ever applied to in the public field, it qualifies for this Title I. It seems in California, this needs to be a service that's offered to our struggling financial population. Mm -hmm. It worked out great for me because three years later, they ended up forgiving my grant. Yeah, that's awesome. uh, I had been paying it back like a loan. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved to uh, Judkins Middle School, where I'm at now, um, it was already a Title I. Mm-hmm. And what I found was every school in this area in Santa Maria, where I live now, um, they're all Title Ones. Every school seems to qualify for this Title I. Um, it's hard. It's hard to know your kids are hungry. Yeah. It's hard to know that you're not thinking straight because you're hungry. It's hard to know that your kids are struggling at home because of finances, that maybe they aren't prepared for school. Maybe they aren't mentally able to focus on anything except for what's going on at home. Um, I've done this really good job of always having free supplies. I keep a pencil bin. I -hmm. keep free pencil sharpeners. I keep free food. I feed kids a lot, a lot, a lot. And And I'm guessing you do that out of your own pocket. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize how much teachers spend on things like that for kids who just don't have and um, and it's it's easy to do like from yourself because you're like they need it and and it's you know a little bit here and there but it certainly adds up but yeah um, nice it's definitely a nice gesture to do for your kids for sure I was gonna say I don't know if I, if I can't think straight when I'm hungry oh for sure yeah. right <laughs> yeah and I and I think that's that's one of the one of the issues that that a lot of educators and also non-educators really don't understand is that is that a lot of our kids are are coming to you know are are coming to, to school and their and their last meal may may have been that you know previous day's lunch um 
and now we were expecting them to sit down and take this test. Um, and they're not, you know, they're not thinking about that. Um, but, you know, and, and, and getting now in, into what, what you do as a, as a teacher, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what you, what you teach in English language science? So um, as a science teacher, I have basically, it's all called Science 7, but I have a population of EL learners, right? Some of them are for number, you know, some of them are level four, which means almost proficient. Others of them are newcomers, so they don't speak any English at all. We get them from Mexico. We get the, we get students from Taiwan. Um, we ha- we were we had a Mandarin Chinese student a couple years back, and what we're finding is. Um, I have lots of tools on Chromebooks, uh, Translate, Google Translate does a lot of it for me. I offer things in dual languages. I do a lot of um, BICs and CALPs, which is like that visual learning, that scaffolding, where I really have to break and chunk things down, make things smaller. I sometimes even have to modify the EL work for them because it's the science is a vocabulary that's Mm -hmm. really difficult. So, you know, sometimes instead they get picture vocabulary, Mm -hmm. you know. So I just do a lot of things that kind of scaffold and build upon visual pieces because that's what works the best for language learners. And thankfully in science, there is so many visual components but that vocabulary piece is really, really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, um, you know, and, and, and again, I think, I think a, a lot of non, non-educators really don't understand that part too, where, where you were talking about Bix and, you know, Bix and, and Kelp. Um, a lot of people really don't understand what those, what those terms mean. And so they just think, well, if someone doesn't know English, let's just throw them into a, into an English only classroom, and then they're gonna they're going to get everything. It's like, well, no, we we really have to build on one of what they you know what they know first, and then we could transfer that into English. Yeah. Um, so so can you can you tell us how how you do this? You know what what are some of your some of your lesson plans like? So um, I think I've shared a couple of them with you, but we do a lot of virtual labs and we do a lot of Chromebook work. So a lot of the things that I'm offering um, through online resources are often they're embedded with pictures, they're embedded with Google Translate, they're embedded. I take big articles, I chop them down into smaller pieces. I take out, you know, I'll take big articles that are like 12 paragraphs and I find the most important three for whatever is content related. I have to just really simplify. I'm always looking for those visuals. I even do sometimes like Latin root prefixes and being able to find the similarities in Spanish language. So then they can see that this is a root word that they Mm -hmm. actually already understand. Um, I'm using a lot of, you know, um, Latin roots and vocabulary breakdown and I do fun like little quizzes so you know we play a lot of anonymous games where I'll let the kids even like partner up where I do a lot of strategic seating can you is everything good yeah yep 
So I have to pair like a high language learner with maybe somebody that's a proof, like a completely fluent language, you know, English learner. Um, I do a lot of high and low seating charts. I, I do a lot based on scores. So I look at all their student language scores. And if I've got a superstar language learner, like at a, at a level four, which is basically you're just about to exit, um, I'll put them with, you know, uh, a fluent English speaker who can peer tutor and they can support each other. I do tables of four. I do tables of two. So often what I'll do is I'll find high, high, medium, low. So I've got two high kids and I've got one medium and I've got one low kid. And this is all based on test scores, language scores, math scores, whatever I can access through the computer. It sounds really fun. And like a learning process for your, maybe your English native speakers too, like where they can um, engage in this content and even learn language skills from the, you know, ELs. And it works for both because the English kids, I mean, our, our primary English speakers, they enjoy being able to learn new pieces of language too. Yeah. Um, part of your philosophy you stated in your bio was that you believe that all kids need love, guidance, and support. Can you tell us a little bit about how you put that practice, uh, your, that philosophy into practice? Yeah. So I'm a very pragmatic thinker along the lines of nurturing the whole child. So, you know, that whole educational piece, education isn't really going to go anywhere if the kids aren't getting their basic needs. So I really feel like as long as every time that they walk in, they know that I love them. They know that they're accepted no matter what they think or feel about um, their, you know, middle school's got a lot of self-esteem issues and a lot of peer pressure and hormone and social status and all this weird stuff. So I'm just, I'm there as their support. I'm an extension of their arm or their leg. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I just tell consider me a piece of their body when they need <laughs> me. <laughs> and I know that sounds so silly to say, but I think that if the child is not getting that love, that guidance, that support, then they're pretty, they're probably not going to find their way to success as well as somebody that is getting all of that. Yeah. And so you, you show to, it too. I try to provide that. You show it too with, you know, what we talked about earlier with providing them snacks and school supplies yeah. and those things if they need it. So that's, that's really good. Yeah. Just the other day I had this student, oh, he's just, so we butted heads at the beginning of the year. He's just really a thug. And uh, he, he was on his cell phone in the middle of class, and he then denied he was ever on his cell phone. But him and I had been playing on the cell phone at lunch, so I knew he had a cell phone. And he got up in my face, and he confronted me, and he told me I was a mm, And mm. I got admin, and I had just this big struggle with him. And then um, it turned out, and I didn't think and he was mad at me. I just realized there was something really terribly going wrong in his life. Yeah. And we came back together and um, after the new year 
And um, it turned out he lives in a car. He has a little baby brother. His mom has two jobs. Mm. And then I started noticing how stinky he was. And so I started bringing him toothbrushes and toothpaste. And Mm -hmm. um, just last week, I bought him a new pair of shoes because he walks in the room and it just smells so bad. Mm. And I've never seen anybody so appreciative and like. Oh, really? So much. And of course, I called his mom first. And I asked her if I could buy him a pair of shoes, because I don't want to hurt a parent's feelings. Like that could be a pride thing. Mm -hmm. And so I asked her what size he wore. And if I had permission to buy him a pair of shoes, I went to Walmart, I bought a $15 pair of shoes. I mean, it's not much, but to him, it was like an entire, like he treasures the shoes. Gosh, that just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) So sweet. Oh. Oh. (laughs) But, you know, he he got really combative with me, and he got really, really upset. Yeah, and I think just because you have a lot of experience to pull from, and so as uh, someone who's been teaching a while, you understand that that behavior is not a reflection on how he feels about you as much as it is, is just like his own stuff that he's going through. And so for you to just see past that um, was made it able for you to actually help him. So uh, that's a really good thing to try to you know, get past ourself (laughs) and our anger and, you know, just feeling insecure about the way that a student might treat us, but to see past that and to help them. So um, that's really amazing that you were able to do that for him. And I imagine now his behavior in class is probably better and he's probably learning from you rather than just, you know, having that chip maybe on his shoulder. Yeah, he's the first of volunteer to pass out papers he's the first to volunteer answers he's super Mm -hmm. like he's bought in now I got him he's mine you know (laughs) but then now with what we're going through I'm just so devastated because I don't get to see these kids these ones that need that from me not all of them need it yeah I do want to some of them get it I did want to ask you about that um so with the COVID-19 and schools are shut down and I wanted to know like how that's changed your practice in your classroom and how, what types of things are you doing uh, to make those connections? Because virtual connections are much different than, you know, face-to-face connections. So how are you maintaining that with your students? So last week was the district and all of the teachers were in pretty much just a scramble. We Mm -hmm. really didn't know what was going to happen and what was going to go on. So what the department and I, which I'm very close with, and we're all very united and aligned, we are going into a virtual station rotation lab, similar to what you've seen me share And what will happen is it will be an interactive document. So they will work through it as, um, and then when they're done with it, they'll submit it and I'll grade it. And then we'll go into like weekly quizzes. Basically on Fridays, I'll be posting weekly quizzes. The good news for me is the kids and I have been using Google Classroom for years. Years, years, years. Mm -hmm. So I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling terribly afraid Mm-hmm. it's the video chat piece that I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then, I mean, if you have a student who lives in a car, how are they going to be able to video chat, right? 
you know? Exactly. Like that kind of stuff. So I know I was reading that Spectrum is providing free internet for kids if they don't have it while, uh, you know, we're online. And we're likely going to be online till the end of the school year. Is that what you're being told too? Well, we're ho- we're hopeful we're going to come back April 20th. We're all okay. crossing our fingers, but I think we all know which direction we're mm. going to be going in. And basically um, what we're trying, we have free internet, Wi-Fi hotspots for all of our students if they don't have Chromebooks. I have 33 Chromebooks um, in my classroom that are getting checked out to students. We have free uh, internet hotspots set up through Spectrum, through um, the district. I'll have office hours once a day for an hour at a time to video chat with kids if they need it. Um, That's the only part I'm most nervous about is the video. So Friday I did a test run where I had had kids check in. Um, I also did a mental uh, check-in survey through Google Forms and I had um, 130 of my 147 check in with me. Um, That's pretty good. So I, I am in contact with almost all but 17. Video chatting requirements for me start on Monday. Um, so I did a couple practice ones yesterday with just a group of kids that are always hanging out with me. And then I did another one. Um, I'm going to do another one today with a girl who doesn't think she can figure it out. So the more I run them, mm-hmm. The easier it gets. Yeah. But this is all really scary for me. <laughs> Which part? Yeah. The actual the actual pandemic part or the technology and the online teaching part? I'm, I'm overwhelmed by um, having a kindergartner and having a third grader and having 147 seventh graders. And now I am the homeschool teacher for my real kids. And I'm the homeschool teacher for my students. Yeah. And I'm feeling overwhelmed because we own one Chromebook between us. Yeah. That's a lot. And um, it's definitely much more challenging for the youngers, like the kindergartners and the first graders and second graders even, who aren't very independent on the technology on their own, like can't read yet. So, you know, like that definitely presents a much bigger challenge in that way. And yeah, parents are becoming homeschool teachers. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Uh, um, if, if some kids are parents are savvy enough, I worry about the fact that there are many parents out there that aren't right. and they're going to not do anything. Yeah. Or just can't, right? Like are or working just, yeah. still and just can't. So yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, because we were I was talking to uh, one of my one of my high school math math colleagues and and he was he was sharing that one of the things that that they were able to do years ago was to actually train train parents um, about Common Core math um, and so so he's he's not too worried about um, about this time um, but but for districts that that may not have been able to actually work with families about common core math, you know, they're going to be just, <laughs> they're not going to know what to do with them. Um, so, yeah. Um, you know, as we're, as, as, as we're wrapping up echo, um, one of the really cool things about listening to you is just your passion. 
Um, it's just your passion for kids. Um, um, just your passion for, for just, just the field of teaching. Um, so one of the things in which we like to do at the, at, at the, at the end of each one of these is to find out what every individual's, what we call their call to action. Um, so what's yours? Oh goodness. To not give up on these kids. You know, I think that it, at this point with what's going on in the world around us, I think that we forget that these kids are going through it too. And they have as maybe even more fears and more anxiety about it because they're feeding off of their parents' fears. And I just want to remind all of us to just not give up on these kids. You know, we got to be able to make sure they are stable and supported and, and now as an online interface, that's still going to be my job is to continue to love these kids yeah. and support these kids and just not give up on them. Mm-hmm. I think that's my call to action at yeah. this point. That's good. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. And thanks for all of your work with your students and sharing that with us. We appreciate you. What's some of your social social media things in which we could share with people. You know, it's so funny. I'm on Facebook, but I have all my privacy settings so high. Um, I, I can be found on Instagram. Um, however, the students set it up for me. So I think it's echo.mosesmen. Um, they all hit me up all the time. I don't know how to even log into my Instagram. <laughs> that might be something that would be good for you to figure out um, while you're... <laughs> quote unquote off, um, because that would be a really good tool to do like, um, a live update and have your students, uh, log in at certain times to see that, or even the live is good for 24 hours, but that's a good way to have just like a little personal connection to your students. If you wanted to choose that. So I have, you know, my my main interface is um, Google, and I we've been through the district working through Google Meet so, oh, okay. or the Google Hangout. So yep. that's going to be the interface where the kids will find me mm-hmm. the most. Oh, good. Um, and technically, with regards to student contact as a professional, I really try to wait until they're out of my classroom and beyond the middle yeah. school set up a, um, a Facebook and I, so I may, um, also join or, you know, create just like, um, echoes Judkins Facebook page where the kids could find me there, but see, they're not of age. Yeah. So then then I'm asking them to break the rules. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is the age restriction on Snapchat? Because I know like a lot of my um, nephews and my nieces use it and have been using it for a long time at a young age. I think snap is 11 plus, okay. but, uh, I yeah. think if you have a parent that approves it, you can I pretty see. much be on any, yeah. I mean, as long as your parent knows a lot of them are parent, um, accounts yeah. and then kid gets usage through it. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. Yeah. Okay, but well, we'll I, uh, share we'll yeah. share that in case people want to connect with you in some way about some of your ideas oh, yeah. or whatever. Please. So.